Thank you for being on our show. Uh, we have today our friend of the program, Miss um, Angela Fama. Um, she lives in Canada, and she did this really cool art project when I worked at when I lived at the Farm Intentional Community. She came and took pictures of different people and asked them uh, what their thought of love was, and then got a an impression of that in three different pictures. And I always felt uh, a connection with her because of being an artist is tough. Sometimes people don't get where we're coming from, but when they see the finished piece, it makes so much more sense and it captures something that only an artist uh, and with a special keen eye can, can do. So uh, now she has a new project she would like to share with us here on our show. And we're just going to go through it and, and actually experience this project as well as we do it together. So uh, tell us a little bit about um, how did you come up with this and what has been the, the reaction or the process of sharing it with others? Mm. Might have to remind me of the second question because uh, the first one I'll do my best to answer. So thank you for having me. It's it's awesome to talk with you again. Um, I still remember brightly meeting you at the farm and just how great it was to talk with you and have your perceptions and your perspectives uh, shared with the What is Love project. So thank you, David. And thanks for having me on here again. Um, the project I'm working on right now is called Death Conversation Game. Uh, and it's it's a card game, but it's not really your standard game. There's not really a winner or a loser. And it's more a tool to instigate uh, how to hold and have conversations on death. And uh, depends on the group that's playing it, what you end up talking about. There's no like dictated form of what it is you're meant to be discussing. It's a really wide range of questions related to metaphysical details, spiritual details, um, more like bookish details, like the, the like writing a will or, or who your next of kin is. Like things people generally don't tend to think about until they have to. Um, and part of the reason that I started this project was what is love ended up taking me directly to death. They're so intertwined. A lot of why we love so intensely is, is attached to death. Um, and I found what I was looking at. Um, I almost died when I was 30. I had a brain injury in a car accident. So it's like 12 years ago. And when I was healing from that, I noticed that, no one was really couldn't really talk to me about it directly. It was it was avoided, um, and and I felt like a bit of a discord with that. So coupled with the What Is Love project and that experience for myself of facing death at kind of a really early age, typically, um, I sort of saw a need. I saw something that I wanted to be able to share with my community instead of just reading about it in a book or experiencing it individually, um, which I guess we all do it essentially. How, how can we share about whatever we can know about it instead of just kind of avoiding it till we, we get there? Yeah, I could go off on so many different parts of this. So maybe let me know what part you're more interested in and then I can expand more about that. If something's caught your ear there. So what has been the reaction of people as you've presented this? To I've held a couple uh, sessions and, and like I said, it's not really like a standard game. It's more like a tool to instigate conversations, like a listening circle, essentially. Um, so you'll pick a question and then you'll pass it around and every like, everyone will have a chance to answer if they want to. And then you kind of share as a group after. 
Um, and then it will be the next person's turn to pick what questions to talked about or what subject. And so far, people often, much like me when I started playing it, like I had a lot of fear. Um, that's part of why I was going into it was was like, I don't want to live my life with a fear of where I'm headed to. How can, is there some way we can kind of look at that? Um, and I found a, a really beautiful thing happens within the groups. Usually when we start playing, the first couple rounds are a bit awkward. And then there's like a good hour of like really meaty discussion. And and then it's like everybody's like, okay, we're good for now. But I found that that everyone seems to to have a shifted perception after in their own way after sharing what what they think and hearing what others think. We don't often have the platform to share what we think about death. It's not something, you know, if you have an idea, it's generally good to kind of flush it out and look at the corners and say it, you know, see if you really believe that, if you speak it out loud. So it's been a really good environment for people to not only learn about themselves, but others. And I've played with people I've known for years. I've played with family members and I've learned to more about myself and them in that one hour than I may have if we'd spent hours talking about other things. So it was a really good way to unify groups and not, I've played with really different groups. So sometimes it's mostly strangers. Sometimes it's people who know each other well or half and half. And it seems to be a platform where regardless of how you know people, you end up being bonded by that experience when you're finished, regardless of what it was like before you started. Um, and most people, when we're done, kind of say that was really expanding. Um, and they, they desire a few people have like held uh, facilitate conversations on their own since like they want to take it with them and, and have the space to, to do this within their own communities. And that's really exciting because when I first talk about it, most people are like, Ooh, <laughs> I don't like that idea. And I kind of have to sort of talk a little bit about why I think talking about death is, is something that isn't gonna, you know, isn't a, I like talking about sticky subjects. I like kind of going into the areas that the people aren't necessarily always like their first pick. Like <laughs> you don't always, you know, walk up to somebody and want to talk about death directly. So this is a tool that's kind of help helping that a bit. And the more I do it, the more I realize the people that have talked with me on it are quicker to open up about it. Or even people hear me say death conversation game and they'll go, oh yeah, I couldn't come to that session. I didn't, I just wasn't ready. But then they'll talk to me about death in that moment. They'll just, it's like an open door. We have such a need to be able to share about this that I've become a little bit of a receptacle for people's sharings on death, which is awesome. I think it's a beautiful side effect of the game. And and again, what I was asked, what I was hoping for when I originally kind of created it was to have a platform, to have questions, to have ways to approach this topic. Because in our culture, Western culture, there's there isn't really a narrative, so you, you kind of don't even know where to start, even if you want to. Generally, unless you are have been faced with it or choose to face it, usually based on circumstance. Do you have one of your cards around that we can discuss? Sometimes when I'm playing with larger groups, there's two different ways to kind of play the game. And with larger groups, what we'll do is, is like someone will just take the deck and read out the questions until everyone in the group wants to answer it. So I could do that with you, just really randomly sort of give you the choice of what question interests you if you'd like. Just read out a couple of them. Okay, to pick, pick a number from one to five. 
Four. Okay. Uh, when do you feel the most alive? I don't know. I guess um, when I'm doing something active or something fun. So if we were in a game session, I would kind of make eye contact and check. Was that your good, like your full answer? And if it is, then I would say you'd pass me the card and it would be my turn to talk. Um, and I feel the most alive when I'm kind of tapping into what I consider, I call it creative energy, but it could also be from dancing or from singing or from working out or from having like a really good coffee with somebody when you feel that kind of connection that that's sort of beyond, you can't dictate that connection. You can't say, I want to feel connected right now. It just kind of taps in. Um, and I feel really alive when I have that feeling where my whole body kind of wakes up and connects with others or with nature or with an experience, like whether it's swimming with water, that kind of thing. And I kind of lose, my brain kind of gets quieted. And as soon as I start thinking, oh, I feel alive right now, my brain steps back in and the moment's gone. But those are the times I feel the most alive. But Angela, um, you're going to get some heckling from me because uh, I work in hospice and palliative mm -hmm. care. Mm -hmm. So um, so immediately the first thing I thought was like, when when do people feel not alive? And then, Well, that's in there too, yeah. And then the question yeah. of... Um, quality of life and that if you're all sick and in um in mobile in a bed and people want to keep you alive forever are you really alive mm -hmm. and i think that's that's not even heckling that's part of the game one of the things i say in my sort of intro to it is just that none of the answers um take them as you hear them to be So the fact that you just shared that, I think, is a perfect answer to that question, right? It's meant to to start conversations, not to say you need to feel alive. It's to to say maybe I don't, you know, or or these are circumstances that I'm being faced with where instead of feeling alive, I feel the opposite of life. But I I really struggle with that, you know. Now, it's it's kind of like everybody in the scientific or medical world agrees that if someone is not living to their fullest, they're not really alive. And then there's the ethical and moral question of like, well, who are we to say what's alive? Of course, if you were to ask the patient, um, when do you feel most alive? And they say, when I'm running and then they can't run, then they're not living to their fullest. But it's a really tricky place because, um, The one thing that comes to mind is this horrible story that I read where this young lady in, in Northern Europe, she had been abused several times and she was very depressed and she asked the government if she could uh, commit a assisted suicide and mm -hmm. her family and everybody agreed and she went ahead, they went ahead and did it. Mm -hmm. And, and I feel awful. Like, like, I feel like now you're being shamed for disagreeing. That if you think that maybe there was something else could, that could have been done, I know that she didn't want to live anymore with this pain, but if suicide is now an option, then it just throws a lot of of our values kind of out of whack, especially since she was so young. Like I can understand someone who's elderly and they lived a full life if, if they are in so much pain and it is a terminal disease. That's different than someone who's full of life, but they just have so much pain that hasn't been processed or 
mm-hmm. or addressed. And then the people just like give up and like, okay, well, if you want to go, go ahead. Mm-hmm. I think that's very valid points. Um, you've brought up uh, some of the other cards because everything is so interlinked. But one of the other questions is when do you think a person dies? I have no clue because you know, I work with, with religious communities and secular communities. And I, sometimes I tell them that there's no way to bridge the gap between um, one and the other because most monotheistic religions believe that your breath is is your life. So if you're breathing, you're alive. But then scientifically, mm-hmm. you can have brain death and you can have you know, physical mm-hmm. death and the heart is still going and the machine is making the heart or the breath go. And so... Mm-hmm. It, and most humans can't even process that and they just they see a twinkle in someone's eye when they're already brain dead and so it's mm-hmm. such a huge challenge and you know I talk about like when I die I want everything to be completely shut down before they start taking my organs to donate them because I still feel like a like a connection with this spiritual idea that if if there's something still kicking there's still some essence in there but actually they start removing organs when people are hard still beating so mm-hmm. it's just very difficult and complicated it is yeah and i think it's important that we talk about it across across people rather than just within um very segregated placements like i was last time i hosted one of these games um, one of the women that was sitting and sharing um, is an ambulance driver. And she shared for that question um, of a recent call that she had where someone was driving and they just suddenly, their body stopped. Like they they literally died. Um, like literally as in everything about the body, the breath, the the eye twinkle, like it stopped. And they actually brought him back so to her she had a much more technical terms for it like what the medical um scientific calculated as as actual death so for her she's just like so what happened in that when we say someone dies when these things happen and then that person came back you know how how do you describe that we have no way of defining it and yet we still try to make sense of that which we can't actually understand i think different people have different ideas of what whether it's the self, the spiritual life, or whether it's the body life. Like, I know when I was in a coma, I didn't feel anything. I wasn't present, but my body was technically alive. You know, like, it's so it's so complicated. And did you feel like when you woke up, like you woke up from a dream? Or did you feel like no. it was a reboot? No, no, not even a reboot. I just was, like, not there, and then I was there. And it didn't feel miraculous. It felt scary. Pardon my language. It was just, uh, yeah, I didn't have any any comprehension of what had happened, where and what. I just woke up in a hospital room surrounded by people looking at me and didn't have any memories of where I'd gone or any near, near. Yeah, I was just not there. And when I say I, I mean the ego, my, my, my mind sense of self of I, right? Obviously, my body was still there. Alive, breathing, assisted, I guess, or just coma. Yeah. So I have a hard time with answering, like, when does a person die? Because if I'd stayed in that coma, 
I would technically be alive, but I, Angela, would not be there, I don't think. <laughs> but maybe 40 years later, I'd wake up. Who knows, right? There's this uh, famous um, Latino singer, um, Juanes, and they were talking about him on the Spanish news, and then they say, and him and his mom uh, have been fighting for his sister who has been uh, in a coma for 14 years. In Catholic culture, you keep fighting and you're always praying for a miracle. And I'm like, come on, man. <laughs> yeah, the woman, the ambulance driver, also shared a story of a family that kept a man alive, essentially, for around that same amount of time. And he was not mentally, like he was not there. But they just, for them, what came out was basically they were doing it for themselves. Like they, they couldn't let him go. And it was a curious thing for her to watch that. And it's hard because like, it's like watching parents. Like we all have our different ideas of what we think is the appropriate way for things to be. Or, but you don't know until you're in that situation what you would do. And, and there's no right or wrong. It's just we try and process life and death individually in our own subjective ways. And if they needed to hold on to that, right, like to keep that body alive, essentially, it kind of goes in keeping with what you were saying about the assisted suicide of someone so young. They they made that choice. Now in the medical world, they talk about resources, they talk about uh, not causing harm, and everybody has different views about what it means, means to cause harm. So the consensus is that if you're pumping someone with artificial means to keep them alive, then you're really like almost Frankensteining somebody to uh, mm -hmm. to exist. And mm -hmm. I, I talk a lot about letting the nature take scores. And if the machines are doing all the work, it's like you have like a Darth Vader kind of situation where are they really alive or not? Or is the machine they're like half robot or something? But nobody even wants to think about that kind of stuff. No, that part again, like the, this this sort of game is meant to kind of start us thinking about that stuff and actively doing that. Would you like to have another question asked at you? I was going to say one of the things that I really like about the game is that it's just an opportunity to learn. I feel like culturally, globally, we need to just stop and listen. We're, we're so, it's the first time in human history that we might not have another generation past the next generation, but we also have the ability to be so intercommunal. Like we're learning so much about each other's traditions and cultures. There's like these invisible walls where it's not actually being shared even within family so this is hopefully adding a, another space where just hearing what everybody's thinking before trying to decide on right and wrong and you know like just letting it be so i'm going to ask you a question when when do you first remember being aware of death that's the weird part like i feel fortunate that i didn't have anybody die in my family until i was 11 it was so strange like they just came and they're like hey grandpa died are you okay and i'm like well i was cool with grandpa but it didn't really hit me and then so them being worried about me made me more anxious than what i really originally was and then i went to the funeral and i saw him like open casket i'm sorry i just don't find that helpful in any way so then i had a nightmare that my grandpa was a zombie and he was trying to get me. And I didn't know anything about zombies back there. They weren't even popular. Mm -hmm. But it was this kind of like, it was like a, he was almost wearing like Halloween makeup. And he was looking for me and I was terrified. In some cultures, like the Amish, 
when someone has a baby or someone dies, the children are right there and it's part of life. But in, in a lot of modern American uh, households, when, when I tell people, hey, the grandchildren should be part of the dying process, everybody's like, no, no, no. We don't want them to see grandpa like that. We don't want them to experience that. And they keep them away. And then you take mm -hmm. them to the funeral and they see stuff that is even more traumatic uh, mm -hmm. sometimes or they're clueless on, on how someone even got there. Mm -hmm. And I'm often asked, you know, as a Latin American, well, you guys are cool with death, you know, the day of the dead and all that stuff. And I'm like, that's not how things roll. When my grandma was in hospice, the hospice was two hours away from the city. When my dad tried to go find her, like he got lost. So in Northern Mexican culture, you actually are so scared to even talk about death that people who are dying are not even around. And then once they die, you memorialize them or whatever, but not everybody celebrates Day of the Dead. Not everybody sees it as a festive occasion. A lot of people grieve maybe too much or they are in this very like depressive state because they, they deal with unresolved issues or had time to process things with the person. So um, so this very like almost medieval, there's a lot of talk about uh, eternal life, but then when it happens, it's all mysterious and spooky. So for myself, every experience that I've had of death has been negative because the two mentors that I had passed away very quickly and I, I didn't, wasn't really involved in, in the funeral. And then when my dad died, it was like he was mad at me uh, before it happened. The first time I, I was aware of death was when my grandpa died. And then every experience I've had up until now when I'm helping people through the dying process has always been strange. Like, And even like you say, um, working in the field, I struggled to write my will and my advanced directives and my do not resuscitate and all that. Because I don't know how I feel. And I started actually looking at it yesterday. And there's some weird questions like, would you be would you be happy with them removing everything, you know, if you were in that situation? And I'm like, I don't know. Depends on, on the situation. But they want you to make this blanket statement before the fact where you, you're giving them permission to not intervene. Or if you're giving them permission to intervene, that they're able to do anything they want. And working with cancer patients... They're, and a lot of times they're like experimenting with people. I'm now in this weird place where it's like, I don't know if I want to go through all that. I don't, I don't know if I want to put myself in other people's hands while I'm going through something so difficult. Mm -hmm. It's, it's crazy. Like I, I have so much respect for your choice to, to immerse yourself in, in assisting and being present for and just offering space for people as they process death. Um, because it does bring up like, since I started making this game, it was two years ago that I started it. But one of the questions is, um, have you, like, how do you, have you, I forget, I, the question's not right in front of me, so I'm just misquoting it, but it's, um, have you signed off body parts, like, after death? Like, have you agreed to that? And then I asked that question a few times and had a few different groups give, you know, some did, some didn't. And then I was like, I haven't yet. <laughs> like, I haven't made that choice. And I had to actually, last summer, I did say yes, because I like the idea of, like, if my eyes, I have really good eyes, <laughs> if my eyes could be used for others to see and, and experience through, 
I would love that to be an option. But I, I had to like go and do a 10 day meditation sit after I signed off the rights for those things. Because in my mind, I still felt like I was somehow like bringing bad luck on myself or something like, you know, in that manifesto, you know, asking you shall receive. So if I focus too much on death, it's going to come to me like just like all of the stories we have about why we shouldn't be talking about death. Um, I had to kind of face I haven't written a will yet. I've gotten I've now gotten a few resources from people since playing the game that make it quite um more palatable too and that's next on my list of like okay I can't just talk about it I have to actually do these actions that I'm seeing that we tend to avoid and one of the biggest impetuses for that for me is just learning and thinking about like if we don't make these decisions for ourselves and something does happen I don't want the people I care about to have to be trying to guess what I would want while they're grieving if I did suddenly die I don't want that to have to sit on anybody even though I, you know, I don't want to have to deal with it myself, but I'm the one that should be taking action for what my choices would be on my body because there's so many to be made. Um, anyway, side, sidetracking. What does? When did you first remember being aware of death? That was our question. I had a, I had a perception again. This ambulance driver, she made an impact. <laughs> um, she's looking at death quite intensely every day, and her answer really sat with me. And it was about that as children, we're very aware of it without being aware of it. Like we make choices to protect ourselves. We make choices to keep ourselves alive. It's like we're intrinsically aware of, of the opposite of caring for yourself. Or like if you cross the street, you might not even know what it is, but you know it's bad. Um, or not bad, but you, you know that you, you don't, like you, you just intrinsically, animalistically don't want it. Because other than that, I don't I don't actually remember. There's a lot of things in my life I can have like a cognitive like that was the first time I remember being scared or that was when trauma hit. But with death, I remember it hitting me. I had a grandparent die and I was older. Um, so actual death. But I was aware of death of circumstance. Like I lived in Zimbabwe when I was a teenager and when I moved from there, I remembered being very aware that the life I had there was dying and that it would never, I could not ever return to it. And it, it kind of changed my perception of existence. So it was like just seeing death in, in much more forms than just our own bodily death. So I think that's when I was first aware of the magnitude of when something ends. And I guess like if, if what we are, if we, if we think of ego and attachment to person and self and memory my my person died in that moment even though my body didn't like the loss was so great it's strange but actual physical death death was a, a grandparent dying and I wasn't that moved by it and I was confused by that because I didn't know the grandparent all that well but I thought it would hit me harder and it didn't and I remembered being like hmm what am I avoiding why am I not able to feel this or see it but I've since sort of learned sometimes it hits you and sometimes it doesn't well in the in the beginning of the conversation you mentioned that um there was a transition from your project what is love to this project and mm -hmm. something that I talk to with my patients is that the more you love the more it hurts mm -hmm. so it's weird because that's very romantic but then 
if you think about it in a scientific it's or painful. <laughs> huh? it's also painful it is very romantic you're right sorry right but if you think about it like in a from a scientific or um, animalistic thing it's like well we don't grieve for people that we don't care about mm-hmm. and then why do we care to begin with like it seems like a flaw of evolution to be so emotionally attached to mm-hmm. anything or anyone and you know there was a video of a dog that was walking in the freeway with another dog and the dog gets run over and the dog goes back and tries to pull his friend out of the traffic and you're like why is does the dog have emotions and interest in the well-being of another dog and this, he's putting his life at risk to try to protect this other dog doesn't that go against evolutionary um, ideals of the law of the fittest so it seems like you know you good yeah. oh I, I didn't want to interrupt before i i have i have some thoughts on that for sure go ahead because for me it's like this like very like existential thing like um mm-hmm. but then we would be like robots if we didn't care and life wouldn't be worth living if we didn't have well, attachment that's, that's the thing i was gonna say i actually don't think that we would strive to exist without love i think that the love we have for color for food the only reason we eat is because an, uh, like a cherry is beautiful and we want we want it um the only reason that we procreate is because we feel yearning, longing, like that longing to connect, whether it's with a pet or a child or a partner or a friend. It's this it's that it's that insatiable isolation that we have underneath everything. That's what I found after the love project. When you're saying, like, the more you love, the more pain you feel. I felt like I got so absorbed by so many experiences of love that it became bigger than than I could actually like it was in my my body couldn't process it all and then it took me past it to that spot of past love like just we are alone <laughs> um and it's 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 that eternal like ebb and flow life and death dark and light of of trying to find existence and calm and peace within that but i don't think that if there was no love we wouldn't care we would just be like oh i don't care like if you didn't love what it tasted like to eat you know a really good meal you wouldn't do what it took to get that meal if it was just to satiate like i have a really hard time eating crappy power bars when i don't have time to cook because it just doesn't taste good i don't love it so same way people, we wouldn't procreate if it wasn't like that that exhilaration of connecting. Um, so I think it's so in, it's it's just so much past the scientific basics of what we need to physically survive. I wouldn't have sex if I didn't want that connection. Like if you think about it, it's like we tell ourselves going to the bathroom is gross, but having sex is great, and it's all so interconnected. Like if there wasn't that pull, that that push, um, that yearning, we wouldn't do it. <laughs> it's uh, to me anyway. That's that's my. But that that answer is why we don't talk about death because it's not pleasurable. But the crazy thing is, like I know that you've done a lot of. I, I think I think you've done a lot of looking at. I find 
we like to control and culture and we don't we don't like what we can't control and we can't control death it's like so uncontrollable so we like to ignore that and i found that the more i've talked about it and the more i've come to people who aren't afraid to face it they they have a peace in their existence of life like it's a fuller ability to be present um without that sort of negating like the elephant in the room um so it might be that death is an unpleasant thing but how do we know that like one of the questions is are there benefits to death we don't know i'm not saying that there is or there isn't but just it's such an unknown uncontrollable that it scares the shit out of us oh is there a benefit to death it's like well that's the thing that we talk about when somebody's suffering then like there is no more suffering there's no more pain so is this like now is like the opposite but um in traditional religious circles they believe that because there's so many traditions well right but um some christians believe that there's still pain after death that your spirit is going to be tormented or uh in spiritual agony if you were a wicked person or didn't believe the right stuff so is to me that's kind of strange but it's is this idea that pain can be um non corporeal so mm-hmm. so now you're going to like oh great like we suffer in this life now you're going to suffer in the next or in the beyond and so there's no relief and and some people see death as as relief so uh when you do training on on helping people who who are suicidal they're um they get a tunnel vision and the only thing that helps them out of their pain is death you know so a lot of people are judgmental towards uh people who commit suicide is they're, they're cowardly or they can't face their problems or whatever what they don't understand is that sometimes people are in so much strife within themselves that that's the only way out mm-hmm. and you know you would always want for the community and their support network to come through for them but sometimes you don't even know what people are experiencing and and part of this this dark cloud that comes over them is that they they don't have the ability to share or to process with anybody else what they're experiencing so do, is there any questions about suicide like why like i think a good question would be like would you ever commit suicide yeah. Yeah, I think that one might be a hard basically a lot of the the questions are meant to sort of address how we feel in the moment at that moment. So projecting to the future is kind of impossible, but often suicide comes up um in the discussion. Like a lot of the questions are so open that it's like whatever someone feels the need to talk about, they find a way to put it in there. And suicide's been discussed quite a bit. And I I like that what you've mentioned about um you don't know like it, if that is what someone is doing that is their that is their like that is their they're seeking a benefit they're they're making that choice for themselves and I have a lot of um respect for just acceptance of differences um and if someone I had a friend um share with me that one of their close friends had committed suicide um and what she said to me about her response to his choice really stuck with me just that 
she hoped that he found the peace that he was looking for. Um, and that she could, all she could do is, is wish that for him. I think we spend a lot of time thinking we know what others should do or what we should like the shoulds and shouldn'ts. But if that's, if that's happened, that's happened. You know, obviously that's, that's what, like, I think you use the words, like if someone's in so much pain that that's their choice, that's the only way they can see to relieve. That's obviously their choice. (laughs) Um, I have not, I had someone ask me today if I have thought about suicide and I have not. I've come close to a space where I could have empathy. I've, like it was actually after the What is Love project, strangely enough. Um, I had so much loss and so much processing of like just experiential understanding of what that was that that I lost my mojo. I lost my kind of will um, for a little bit. And I thought, okay, this is what people are feeling. Like this is, I think I'm touching in on what some people feel. And I think we don't necessarily sign up for, we all feel so differently. Like our bodies just process emotions in such a subjective way that we don't know what other people are feeling. We can do our best to try and share and experience and empathize, but we have to just do our best to support as best we can what we can see, what others need. And I think you are doing that you're choosing to do that in your career, right? Like as your, as your practice. Yeah. But then you have uh, family issues that throw everything out of the, out the window. Um, Everyone's needs. They're all different and interconnected. When my dad started getting sick, um, he was never good at coping with, with pain or difficult things. So he would use alcohol um, to like relax, whatever. And then it became this, like, you know, if you keep drinking, you keep smoking, it's going to get worse. And it was like, no matter how you put it, it, he would still do it. And then, so then it's easy to be uh, mad at someone for not listening to medical advice or trying. So then you see it as like a prolonged suicide mm-hmm. that, that people don't want to be old or they don't want to experience um limited uh, mobility or abilities so then they they do everything that is against their their well-being and it's this drawn long drawn out um thing and and my brother and i can agree that he had lost interest in life mm-hmm. so you know my job is to encourage people and to give them hope and to help them uh, find meaning in the midst of their pain and it's is a weird thing because some people uh, don't want that like they it's like back to the choice like you can present it but that doesn't mean that they're they're gonna um, connect with it but there's this this sense of kind of like with a with an illness you want to present healing or you want to give people the opportunity to heal but if they don't follow the exercises or take medicine or go through therapy there's nothing you can do you can just um, make it available mm-hmm. so um, so I think that's that's the difficult most difficult part is the expecting certain results and then not achieving that because of the person not 
going there with you. Well, expectations, right? I don't know if I agree with this, like, well, everybody does whatever's best for them. It's like, yeah, but not really, because sometimes uh, people can change their mind. If if you take a libertarian approach where it's just like, well, everybody mind your own business. If they want to uh, kill themselves, go ahead. And if they want to, you know, drink themselves to death, that's their problem. I'm not saying that you're saying it, but sometimes it kind of comes across like that, where personal choice becomes any choice is equal. I think that it's super challenging to to try and dynamically offer support um, because it has to ebb and flow as the person that you're you're with ebbs and flows. And then there comes a point where it's like facilitation of bad habits, but then it's like who decides what's bad and right. I think something that it might touch on what you're, you might be seeing as not necessarily what I mean, but I do think that everyone does the best that they can. So I know that when I have been more struggling in my life, I have not wanted to be where I was and I have reached out for help. And sometimes I had people trying to help me, but I couldn't receive their help, even though I was grateful for them trying to help me. I still had to kind of get into the hole I got into to get myself out of it. And sometimes people get into that hole and they don't get themselves out of it. But I do think that we are animals and we do strive within ourselves to do the best we can. So if someone's calling you to them to help them, that might be all they can do. They might not be able to take the drugs, like the medication that you're bringing or the, or the support that you're bringing. But just the fact that you're there might, is something better than if you weren't, you know, like, it's just different ways of looking at, I would love it if like I could say what I think, like expectations are challenging. So I try really hard to try and understand empathically each individual person and each individual person's relation with me whenever I'm trying to offer anything. I'm not a death doula, but I, I, it's just, so I don't, I have no idea. Like that's just, that's a beautiful thing to be stepping into that space and trying to navigate your own emotions within it as well as in others and just that act act between the bodily science of life and health and then the, the emotional science of you know emotional metaphysical side of life and health it, it's it's so complicated i don't think there is a right or a wrong to be honest i think it's different in every single situation um but i do think that everyone's tries the best they can you might think they could do better but if they didn't do better they obviously couldn't do better you know, it doesn't mean, oh, just let them go off and walk off that hill. Of course, I'm going to try and hold their hand and hold them back. But if they really don't want me to, they might just be sitting there going, I wish I could, but I can't. You know, like, it's not up to us to dictate what other people can and can't do, but we can offer as much support as, as we can give. When we were talking about things that are um, pleasurable or exciting or, or the, the draws to do them, um, has anybody brought up the issue of tension? Um, you know, some people say that if there wasn't tension between lovers or between relationships, they would be like a dull relationship. Um, do you think that maybe the reason that speaking about death is so painful and so difficult is because, like you said, there's many opinions and there's many ways to look at it, and it's so uncomfortable that unless it was talking it with someone who you truly trust and, and you know there's no judgment and there, there's no agenda, 
that that's when people can truly feel comfortable to talk about death. Well, do you know what's cool about this game? It's different than how we've been talking. You and I are bantering a bit and going off. Um, the game holds space where you just listen and you just share. And it's not about finding answers or right or wrong or answers might come out of it, but it's not about trying to hash out some agreed upon anything. It's just having a space to have that safety of just sharing past past what you might think is safe. Because it's hard when you have people you love. Like, I I know that it's really hard for me to think about the people closest to me dying. It is hard for me to talk to them about some of the aspects of death. Um, and I found it to be safer to have it in a, in a space where everyone is there kind of committing to, to give that space. Like, essentially, when you're playing the game, you don't talk unless you're holding the card. It's not about cross. There's there's a few sort of steps. It's almost like integrating a counseling workshop where there's a few, like, read-first sort of rules, ground rules about there's no cross-talk. There's no, like, bantering in on somebody when they're talking. You just speak on your ideas of the card when you have the card and you pass it on to the next and you listen when other people are speaking. And it... it it allows our own egos to kind of not necessarily be in the room when we're listening. So it's, it's allowed me to actually see some of the other people's opinions that I might've been a bit more like, mm, I don't, I don't agree with you in a really different way and, and hold that space to have more acknowledgement for somebody might actually believe like, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in a white man in the sky. I really don't. Um, but some people do. And and it's it it's allowed me to have that space past my initial no, to just like accept that they do. I don't know what the other answers are. Maybe that who knows? Like <laughs> we're all just kind of trying to make sense of what we don't understand. We have different languages for how to kind of share with each other on it or try and decipher it. And I think those languages need to become more open and more inclusive in order to not be so separated in trying to understand. Yes. Uh, is there like a meditation before or after the game to kind of get everybody on the same wavelength? It's more the, uh, the it's, it's like in the instructions, there's like this thing that says, it just says read first. And it talks about um, emotions being a natural part of the game. If somebody is feeling something, just let them feel it. If they'll ask, like, if you need help, ask for it. Um, talks about how sharing creates inspiring experiences, but sharing as well as boundaries. And being conscious of details and their importance and triggering. Um, and decide as a group before you play what constitutes too much information. Um, and also you, you, you agree before you play that you're creating a safe space for subjective differences. So it's not about a battle of wills. It's about just listening. Um and being mindful of time, reciprocity, crosstalk, and assumptions. Uh, and it's meant to be fluid in meaning, so there's no like right or wrong way to understand any of the cards or any of the things that, that are being offered to speak about. And if you don't want to talk, you don't have to. If you just want to answer yes or no, you can. Like, it's It really is just a safe space to to start this dialogue of cross-differential understandings, right? No one so far has, like, as a group, it's it's become quite full circular. Like, 
I haven't had anyone after be like, oh my God, I'm like, we need to like, it's, it has felt very meditative to be doing this as a process with people. Like each group sort of dictates what they need. And it's, it's never not happened that it closed nicely. If that makes any sense. It seems like as a group, everybody's like ready when the last card goes around. It's like, as a, like, it's like, it's very unified in its separate allowance. If that makes sense. Like it closes together. In, in one of the instructions said uh, be mindful of time so has there ever, ever been too much sharing or too long no. no no it's been good sometimes people share long but it's always like people are quite passionate about what they're sharing and having that space to just be able to share without wondering if they're going to get judged or disagreed with or like just being able to just be you and share it's been, it's been really beautiful to watch the differences at the table and and just be in a space that's allowing that. Um, and when people share a lot, it's it's usually with such sincerity that you're caught along with them, like you're interested in what they have to say, even if you don't necessarily agree or think the same thing. It becomes interesting. I've watched groups shift. At first, everybody's kind of itchy and is a bit like excited about when they talk and kind of staring at walls when others do. But about like in the heart of it, everybody's really engaged in each other. I've done this with children as well, and they, they have also been engaged and, like, wrote notes. It was awesome with, with um, children and their, and their parents. Well, that was my next question. Uh, where do you find these people, and, and do you particularly look for a certain type of groups, or are they just organically come together? Uh, a bit of both. So I've, I started facilitating with peers or with um, people around me, but then they started asking Oh, can we do one at my house with these friends? And then I got asked to do one at a, at a, I've been asked to be a part of different events. Like, um, this month, November, November 2nd at the museum of Vancouver, I've been asked to be part of a design show that's talking about changing narratives through design, um, changing sort of like cyclical social structures. Um, and then I was part of a art show workshop on designing death, like just different, like the, the mother of the daughter had sat with me. She was a friend and I asked her to sit with me during a test uh, game session. And then she asked, Hey, I would love for you to come with some of my friends and their kids. We want to talk about this with our children and offer a space if our kids want to. Um, and they did. So it's a, it's a bit of both. Like people are quite when they're not at first, but once they play, they're like, Oh, okay, I can, you know, let's do this. Let's do more of this. So you share with us um, the rules of the game, some of the questions that are um, helpful to start the conversation um, in the type of different groups that you have done it with. Um, what has been your experience? Um, you've shared a lot of personal uh, struggles and, and realizations through your artwork. How has this... Um, this experience uh, affected you and is it is do you feel like it's creating a movement or taking off and making people more uh, comfortable at, at discussing the subject um i think that it has been very successful in helping me to to navigate my fear of death so i've i've actually met people that that have peace when they talk to me about death and that's been inspiring And it's helped me to kind of um, connect my meditative practice where you look at and you just accept what's there. 
um, without craving or denial. And now when I think of death, I'm more comfortable with it. And the idea of dying in fear or dying with openness, I want to do everything I can to help myself die with openness. Um, and like I've found some inspiring people like Lou Reed, when he died, him and Laurie Anderson, the way that they were actively open about it, um, they're, they're kind of like heroes to me in that sense um, of approaching death and how to like have active awareness of it, sharing with others, not being not needing to hide off, being open about it, talking about it. Um, and I found the people that have been playing with me have also, we now have conversations about death that did not happen before. It's something that's become a normal thing. It starts, it's like we're changing the narratives within Western culture on, on social interactions regarding like approaching conversations of death, approaching ideas of death. So I would say that I'm really grateful for the people that have been a part of talking with me about it. <laughs> so success so far. Yes. <laughs> so it's personal success and opportunities to have different types of people and different types of, um, and then is, is there such a thing as, as a better culture that, um, like a culture that talks about death in a more, um, enlightening way, because again, not to heckle you, but when I lived at the, at the farm and also when we were working with a doula for our first child, they show you these videos of there's certain tribes that the women, are standing up when they have their kid and then they go back to work right after and they have this very communal aspect of I, I consider uh, coming to life and and going to the great beyond as two rites of passages that we, everybody has to go through it, have you encountered some culture that talks about death in a in a more um, engaging way that is not as secretive or scared of it and can you share with us about that, or is or is that a myth? I don't think it's a myth, but I think that I would be like appropriating another culture's story if I was to share it. Like I I, I do know like Buddhist philosophies are kind of what I'm more akin to, of of just an awareness and an, an acceptance and letting it be, um, not in a passive manner, but like actively letting it be, if that makes sense. Um, I I I kind of believe that that humankind right now is at a is at a space where it needs to just stop and listen before we can decide any better than or better way to be or it's not like going backwards or changing a culture or trying to like amalgamate but I think I think I don't know how to answer that without just saying I appreciate not needing to know like just trying to be cool with accepting and listening and learning more about what is here right now. Um, Cause I think everything's changing so dramatically that trying to like attach to something or, or have something be an answer is, is kind of, it's always shifting. So that's, that's my answer. <laughs> um, I don't, I don't think I can, I don't think anything is going to tell me what it's going to be like to die. I don't think we have any answers to that. And I'm trying to be okay with that, to find peace with that, like more than okay, but to find serenity within that knowledge. 
Well, that's a wonderful thought to finish with that uh, it's more about the process. And I think that that's what gives people peace to, um, to have a chance to share their thoughts, to share their fears and their uh, concerns or wishes for what dying should be like or what they think dying is and and be happy with that that you can um come to terms with something without finding answers and, and that's the the difference from western culture that western culture wants to define and describe everything when mm-hmm. in other cultures it's just is and mm-hmm. and you um uh, and you embrace it so uh, that's that's uh, a great realization that that I guess we we're sharing in in our program, and that um, as artists we have the opportunity to help people uh, get there. Mm-hmm. So thank you for the work that you're doing and using uh, artistic form, a game. Um, and some people might not consider games as, as an art form, but anything that makes you think, that makes you explore, that is sometimes even playful with. Um, you know, human um, thinking and and wandering is part of of the creative process. Mm-hmm. It's it's death conversation game, and um, right now I'm running a Kickstarter campaign to raise funds for printing the first batch of a larger run, so that I can offer it not too expensive, so people can actually have that option to facilitate their own conversations because right now it costs me like $80 to make one deck but with this batch I'll be able to have it down to 40 Canadian dollars which is like 30 something American dollars um and I hate talking about money and putting it with death but in order to be able to have it be accessible to to others yeah it's it's a necessity because people keep asking for it so I need to know from the communities that that it is something that's needed, that it's something that's wanted in order to keep putting my energy towards it. Cause it does take a, a lot of, you know, all of the arts, like takes a lot to give. Um, and it's, it's what I'm passionate about. So I hope that uh, others also feel passionate about it. And so far it's been going really great. If we want to um, find you and support your uh, project work in, we um, go and, and make a donation to, to make this happen. Yeah. Um, if you just search Kickstarter Death Conversation Game Angela Fama, it'll pop up. So if you if you look at my website angelafama.com in the contact section, it'll take you to the Death Conversation Game. Also deathconversationgame.com. It's pretty easy. It's a website. It'll take you right there. Yeah, it's Kickstarter, and and it's it's pretty quick pop up. Yeah, and you can donate as little or as much as you'd like. So you can buy your own card deck for 40 bucks and shipping and handling, and it's just that cost, and that supports the project. And you'll get it hopefully before Christmas, so you can have some, we're going to talk about religions and traditions, you can have some exciting Christmas family conversations. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the show. It's always a pleasure to have a fellow artist and someone as talented as you sharing with us your uh, magnificent projects, and uh, we hope to hear from you soon. Thank you, David. Take care.